Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I'm Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Kevin Getz, uh, the author of Audienceology, How Moviegoers Shape the Films We Love. And Kevin is, is a really interesting figure because he has one of the most fascinating jobs in the industry. I'll just I'll just read the intro from his jacket bio here so you can get a sense. His firm, Screen Engine slash ASI, conducts research for a majority of the movies that are widely released in America and around the world. With decades of experience, Getz has worked uh, alongside all the major film studio chiefs, network and streaming platform executives, and production company decision makers. Um, he's also a producer. You're a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and the Producers Guild. We've got, we've got a really uh, great guest here. And I am very excited to have you on the show. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Sonny. I'm very thrilled to be here. Uh, so explain to folks what exactly you do, because I'm obviously very excited, but I don't think I don't think most people understand what a what test screenings are like and what what uh, acquiring those audiences are like and what they do for the studio. So if, give me give me the elevator pitch on your job. Well, my job is uh, essentially being the doctor of audiences or the doctor of audienceology. So that means that movies that are finished but not released yet go through a process of revealing them to an audience for the first time, to gain feedback, to get things people liked about the movie, things they didn't like about a movie, things that are confusing, things that are not altogether satisfying. and. There's a period of time built into a movie schedule for most movie schedules where changes can actually be made editorially, sometimes reshoots, and then they are released to the world. So that's a very important period of time. And the reason it's so important is in large part is because this is the first time that the filmmakers and the studios are sort of showing their babies or revealing their babies, their artistic children, if you will, out into the world. And then I have to come along based on people's feedback and tell them, you know what, your baby is not so attractive or your <laughs> baby is not well and you need to do this or this in order for it to be, um, to, to get better, to, uh, to survive, whatever it may be. Sometimes it's a great experience and you say, oh my gosh, your child's a top percentile and your child's going to go on and be a major success and conquer the world. But that's not usually how it goes down. It's usually there's something or sometimes very uh, small things, sometimes very large things that can be done. And um, what it really does, you know, Sonny, is it, um, this is a very long elevator, by the way. No, it's good. This is, we're going Maybe to the top of the Empire State Building. building. So this we're... is a very long elevator ride. I think we're going up to uh, the 600th floor right now. <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, what it really does is it fulfills on the filmmaker's vision in its, in its totality, if you will. It really helps create the realized vision of what the director or the producer set out to make, if that mm. makes sense. Sure. Sure. No, that makes that makes total sense. And I, I uh, there's an interesting line in your book where you're talking about the cardinal rule, the cardinal rule of movies, and that's don't judge it before an audience has seen it. Right. And and I am I'm fascinated by this rule because you note in your book that there are some directors who push back a little bit on this, you know, directors who who, you know, don't want that sort of feedback. But I think most of them come out of the experience 
happy for the improvements, right? Oh, absolutely. There are times when um, I've had experiences of filmmakers really having a disdain for the process and a disdain for me, quite frankly, for being the messenger. Originally, this book was called Don't Kill the Messenger because I have to deliver the news. But, you know, let me just say it this way. Ron Howard, the, the great director, says it the best, I think, which is, look, I get to choose the uh, script that I'm going to make. I'm sent a lot of scripts and I choose that one. And then I get to develop it with the writer. And then I get to cast it and I get to put all my favorite people in the key positions like the cinematographer and the, you know, the uh, costumer and the production designer, et cetera. And then I get to shoot it my way, essentially. And then I get to edit it before in my director's cut period, which is usually 10 weeks after the movie is shot. And then I have to give it up and show it to an audience. And that's when the rubber hits the road because what I set out to communicate may not actually be what is being communicated to the audience. And I have to listen at that point and make adjustments so that what I did set out to do becomes fully realized. Yeah, yeah. And it's different depending on the the type of film, right? I mean, there's a difference between seeing if a joke lands uh, in a comedy and seeing if you've set the tone right for the film at the beginning or if the ending sends them home, you know, excited to tell people about the film. You know, it's funny. It's in the pandemic period, especially in the beginning of the. Well, I, you're, the timing is going to be a little odd because we test movies months before they release. So let's <laughs> be a year into the pandemic, I started to watch, as all of us did, so many movies. And I was struck by the sheer numbers that because of the pandemic hadn't tested their films and they were so long mm. many of them were too long many of them had endings that didn't quite work they didn't land i i would think the, to a large enough audience right mm -hmm. uh that doesn't have to mean they're a happy ending but there was a lack of clarity there was some major confusion in the movie and so rather than people recommending the movies, they were like recommending them with qualification. Well, it's really good, but it's long. Well, it's really good, but well, the ending has good. That's not a good recommendation you want for your movie. Uh, and I found that to be a phenomenon that took place. And I think that had to, a lot to do with uh, not previewing movies beforehand because they couldn't. Now, good news is, is my company, Screen Engine ASI, uh, invented a virtual platform at the beginning of the pandemic because we realized we may not be going back to theaters anytime soon. Yeah. So we created this platform that was in real time to give filmmakers uh, the ability to screen a movie with 150 to 250 whatever people watching it while you're watching them watching it. And so that was super cool. And uh, it's yeah. been... It's been a great, it's been great learning experience too, because, you know, no matter how you see a movie, whether it's on the big screen or whether it's uh, on a screening platform, there are some innate, uh, many innate similarities, meaning it doesn't suddenly become not long because it's on a streaming platform or because it's in a theater. It doesn't become less confusing because it's on a, in a movie theater and then because it, there are certain inherent properties uh, of any sort of um the logic issues, the the um, the pace issues, the engagement issues 
don't change regardless. A great filmmaker, uh, and I forgot who it was, uh, I read this about a few months ago, said his favorite movie of all time was Jaws. And he said, you know something? I've never seen Jaws in a movie theater. And I said to myself, you know, how many people have seen some of their great movies, mm. not in a movie theater, like Casablanca, like Citizen Kane, like so many sure. movies we could just, you know, go on and on about, right? So that to me is just a very in- a telling and interesting sort of thing about what I do. That yeah. well, Does that make sense to you? Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I mean, look, I've, uh, I am a big proponent of the theatrical experience. We can talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but I, like you say, I mean, I've never seen Citizen Kane, uh, uh on the big screen, right. I've it, with an audience. Um, and do you consider it one of the great movies of all time? I consider it to be one of the greats, but, but I will also say that, you know, I saw 2001, a space odyssey at home on my TV and I was like, okay, yeah, this is, uh, it's fine. And then I saw it in a theater, you know, with an audience, uh, on 70 millimeter on a big giant screen. I was like, Oh, now I get it. Now it's now, it now it's all. Absolutely. Clicking. Absolutely. I think it can go either way. And, uh, same with, for me, which, which is some people ask me, what, what I think is the best film ever made, uh, for me was sound of music, the sound of music. And I saw it year over year as a kid, and it was delightful, you know, and lovely and all that. And when I saw it in the restored color in a big, on a big screen, uh, I was sort of blown away by it and saw why I referred to it as cinematic perfection, because it had from everything from the story to the cast to the general, uh, it wasn't polarizing. I mean, you could say um, many of the Kubrick movies are genius, but they were also very polarizing in terms mm-hmm. of their audience. Sound of Music sort of was a, a movie that united. It cut, touched a chord in so many universal ways and and had all of those department heads just be stellar in what they did, from the writing to the acting to the to to the to the cinematography to the production design to the music to blah 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 all of that stuff. That's why I, I value it that way. But clearly there was something to be said about the theatrical experience on that mega screen, you know, with that sound that was. Yeah an intention and it was clearly uh, realized in a different way. Yeah. I, I want to talk about the actual mechanics of screenings um, sure. in terms of how you guys uh, choose your audiences and, you know, uh, and how you, how you put together the type of audience that you're looking for demographically, you know, in terms of age, gender, that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, every screening has a specification letter that's discussed with the studio beforehand. They call up and say, we want to test this movie. Uh, sometimes it's without the studio. Sometimes the production company, before they even have a studio, will call us up and we'll discuss it. They'll say, well, you know, I, my first question or the people who run my uh, the logistics of, of my business will say, what do you want to get out of this? You know, what's your goal? Well, the goal is to um, is to make the movie um, the best it could possibly be. Uh, the, be- the, the goal is to um is to find out how it's landing for the audience. And therefore, uh, we want to cast a rather wide net. We don't want to ghettoize the movie too early. Mm-hmm. You know, because many people think, and there's examples in the book, uh, as, you've, as you've read, where people think, oh, this is a movie for young females, let's say. But it doesn't mean, and it it is principally for young females, but it doesn't mean that older males and younger males are not also going to like it, which means that it might be more of a date movie or a compromise movie as opposed to just 
a bona fide chick flick in the mm-hmm. day we used to call it. Um, and that is important because um, happy accidents happen all the time, right? Yeah. There's one in your book, uh, The Wedding Crashers. You specifically talk about that that finding a different audience than than the filmmakers suspected. Which one? Wedding Crashers? Wedding Crashers, absolutely. Wedding Crashers, <laughs> I don't think they knew what they had. I remember that very first screening, I believe it was in Pasadena, where we tested the movie. And you, um, you know, when you have those great comedies, every joke just lands. And it just was one of those. So it was a, it turned out to be a four-quadrant movie as opposed to just men uh, following these two guys' antics. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, it was females were really behind it. And a lot had to do with the wedding aspect of it, too. But it was just a funny movie. And it really became what we call a four-quadrant movie. So going back to your question about how do we get demographically and mm-hmm. so forth, when I talk about quadrants, I talk about males under, males over, females under, and females over a certain age. Usually, it's like, 25 or 30 years old. As movie audiences are getting older, now some of that is sometimes that break is 35 or 40. Mm. So we try to get an audience that's balanced demographically and also balanced racially and ethnically. So we get a uh, sort of a microcosm of what the United States is really looks like if the movie is going wide, right? If the movie's going wide, you want to have the audience look like we as a society really look. We, you don't want to try to get, you know, 75% Caucasians in a movie when, you know, clearly African-American and Hispanic moviegoers over-index in moviegoing. It just, mm-hmm. it's, you're not doing yourself a, a, a service a, a, or you could be doing yourself a disservice. That's one aspect. Female and male usually divided equally, you know, 50-50. And then we get a little more surgical. So now you have demographics, which uh, I have a whole a whole thing. We could do a whole show on <laughs> what, what, why I think demographics um, need to be rethought. Because where we come together as a society, much more now than demographics, is psychographically. Mm-hmm. Our, you know, our behaviors and our attitudes and our common interests, education, our sophistication in terms of how engaged we are in issues. Uh, And that transcends any kind of ethnic and racial boundaries. So we try to come up with a movie qualifier list for each movie that says, if you're going to enjoy this movie, uh, you will have, in order to enter, you will have to have seen and enjoyed these three movies out of 12 selections, let's say. Mm -hmm. And the reason we do that is because you don't want to waste real estate on folks who, let's say someone is only into big action, blockbuster, superhero movies. And this one is much more of an intellectual exercise. You Mm -hmm. don't want to invite people who are going to just reject it. So we try to remove non-rejectors because they're never going to see the movie, Mm -hmm. most likely never going to see the movie. So why are we going to cut the movie or change the movie based on their opinions when what we want to get are people who are most likely going to see it or at the very least fence sitters who may or may not see it. That's who you want to really change your movie for because from a business perspective, it makes total sense that you want to, um, you want to cater to that group of folks much more than you would to people who are never going to see it. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that makes perfect sense. In your book, you talk about finding the niche, finding yeah. the audience niche. And that's a, that is a key part, not only of the filmmaking process, but also the advertising process. When I, I say make a movie for everybody, make a movie for somebody, but don't make a movie for nobody. And I know it's a mm-hmm. little negative. But what I mean by that is make a movie for everybody demographically, which is what mm-hmm. most superhero movies sort of do. Spider-Man is the perfect example of a movie for everybody from boys, girls, dads, moms, teen boys, teen girls, general audience, females, general audience, males. It hits all eight octants uh, and and strongly. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is um, a rare occurrence. Make a movie for somebody is make a movie for, you know, adult men and women. Make a movie for teen gals and teen boys. Make a movie for just females. Make a movie for just males you know, demographically. And that's, again, more for the wide release. Maybe horror films fall in that kind of category, certain horror films, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Uh, but don't make a movie for nobody. Now, when I say don't make a movie for nobody, I mean a big theatrical experience today cannot survive if you don't have demographic sort of identifiers in mm-hmm. today's world. As you know, the movies that are doing well and are surviving are movies that are made for at least somebody, but hopefully everybody. Mm-hmm. The movies that are made for nobody really are meant for streamers and for and and when I say nobody, I mean demographically. So what they ha- are made for are psychographic identifiers. So people who are cat lovers, people who love gourmet food, and people who are um, uh, take up knitting. I'm making this up are three areas that if you compiled all of those people, you've created three subsections that it's like finding needles in a haystack. But when mm-hmm. you are on a streaming service, much more easily identifiable to be able to do that. And you can make every movie that way. Every movie has a place to exist. Every single movie. The problem with most people in today's world is they don't understand early enough on what they have and they don't size the audience up uh, uh, correctly. I have a mm-hmm. strong belief that every movie, if made and marketed for the right price, should make money. Mm-hmm. Only if you know what you have at the get-go, you see. So by yeah. the time you get to the screening of the movie, you know, the die is cast already. You know, you can you only have to you can only make those changes knowing that I am going to release this movie in a big way, even though the DNA of it may be telling you a different or maybe having a, um, may have a different story to it, right? Yeah. Well, you, you've mentioned streaming, and I, I'm curious how streaming has changed your job and your interactions with the audiences and the studios themselves. I mean, I, I, I am curious what the process is like with a company like Netflix, which, as you say, does more micro-targeting um, and, and can kind of uh, make something for everyone. You know, that's Netflix's whole thing, right, is we're making stuff for everyone. And will find the audience. Um, but doesn't, I mean, that, that, that seems to run at least a little counter to what, to what you are doing specifically when you're testing for audiences and trying to fine tune things. Okay. Uh, actually not at all. So, uh, when I was just speaking to you, it was about the studio movie with a wide release because for years and years and years, that's what the gold standard was. You want everyone aspired to put their movie in a theater. But consumers 
tell us a different story. Consumers, for the first time, say about five years ago it began, really were in the driver's seat for the first time. Prior to that, studios would tell us, hey, these two or three movies are coming out this week, and this is what you're going to see. And if you, none of you didn't like any of those three, you didn't go to the movies that week. Or you went to the local video store and you got, uh, you know, this, this, or this, and, and you watched a movie that way, and more movies begot more movies. So the mm-hmm. actual movie going still was at the top. And then when the um, streamers really became into uh, sort of a critical mass, that changed. Consumers didn't stop liking content. We love content. We can't get enough of content. But we want it when we want it, how we want it, when we, and, 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 and at, at, at any time. And if you don't give us what we want, we will find something else because there's so much out there. Content of any sort needs to be tested, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because it will only make it better. It will only make it more realized. It's not going to make it worse. It's only going to make uh, something that is already good, great, and something that is mediocre, watchable. And something, you know, there are very few movies that I've ever watched that I just go, don't touch a frame of this. It's just perfection. You know, Mm -hmm. there's always some little thing that can be done because audiences point it out. And from a business standpoint, it makes a heck of a lot of sense. The streamers still test their movies. We don't test them typically. We don't care so much demographically, as I was starting Mm -hmm. to say. We care more about their, their preferences of how often they watch movies, how kind of movies do they watch. So it's more about that movie qualifier list I talked about than it is about anything demographically. Because, again, there's more movies than there have ever been. They're just not movies that are movie theater worthy movies. And I mean, mm-hmm. they don't, they don't have a business purpose to be in a movie theater because to be in a movie theater, you've got to have something that enough people are going to support. And in order to have enough people to support them, you have to spend money on advertising, mm-hmm. usually a lot of money on advertising. So the economics change dramatically. So that's what I mean about knowing what you have at the get-go. Because if you know you have something at the start that is um, a movie for nobody, I'm calling it demographically, you know this is a streaming movie, but you've made it with the intention of it being for everybody because you just didn't know enough to ask the right questions or whatever it may be, you're stuck with that hugely <laughs> expensive movie. You don't turn back, typically. You go farther and you you invest with some thought that people are going to somehow be changed. Now, every now and then that does work, but most of the time it does not work. Most of the time you're going to lose money or somebody's going to lose money and sometimes a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about some of the specific examples in your book, because there are a lot of really fascinating stories in here. One that jumped out to me uh, in particular was Moonstruck. And the shift that was made early on in that movie, it, what 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 was the issue that needed to be fixed with Moonstruck? Well, less about being fixed and more about uh, setting the tone. So mm-hmm. when we tested Moonstruck, the te- there were two tests scheduled, one for New York City and one for Paramus, New Jersey, which was only within, what, 40-minute uh, radius, 45-minute radius. 
Um, except on a Friday afternoon when it's a six hour radius. Uh, yeah. no, but, but, uh, no, but, uh, the, let's say the first one was in Paramus. So the movie was tested. The audience saw the movie and, uh, they, uh, really liked it. But for the first half of the movie, you didn't really hear any laughs or they were warming up to it. You see, mm-hmm. Just, it started initially with this very, um, you know, serious operatic aria. Uh, and it was very, you know, set the tone for a very sort of s- serious kind of picture. And when they realized that it was fun, it was a l- long time into the movie. So the scores came back after people rated the movie and the scores were, um, they were good to very good. But that was a great movie. Mm-hmm. What was missing? The editor in the postmortem afterwards said, you know, we're not really giving them permission mm-hmm. to laugh. So because movies were done on two, two systems in those days, they were called unmarried prints. You had the, the sound on one and the picture on another. It was easy enough to change out the first cue of music for the second night of the screening in New York City, which he did. And instead he added a lighthearted Italian fun was it um i think it was that's amore gene martin right yeah gene martin. Yep. when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie that's amore and the audience started laughing right away and suddenly the scores came up like 20 points mm. because they didn't have to work that hard they could settle into the movie so the whole movie took a different trajectory if you will and it wasn't like the movie was not good the movie was the same movie except for that cue that little thing triggered a way to say you're okay audience enjoy it laugh at it have fun with it and as a result it probably changed the economics of the movie as well yeah in terms of the full satisfaction does that make sense oh yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, I, I mentioned before openings and closings. That's a great example of a movie where you, you tweak the opening just a little bit and it, it changes the whole mood of the picture. Yes. Um, and, and in, in closings, uh, there, you also have a very good story about Footloose and what was, what was, uh, <laughs> kind of added on to the end of, of that film. Oh boy. Well, you, do you know the movie well enough, Sonny? Sure. Okay. Sure. So, so remember what, what happens at the very end of the movie where well, there's big, big dance party. Right. Big, big dance. And of course, famous lift and, and, uh, and a whole, right. Well, that wasn't in the first cut. And, um, the first cut was they talked about the dance party. The whole movie leads up to this dance party. And in fact, they never showed it. So, uh, I think it was, uh, Craig, uh, the late Craig, um, Zayden and Neil Merrin, the producers were both like, you can't have a dance movie without showing the final um, number. Tested the movie, movie comes back, ending, air comes out of the room, you know? People were expecting it. But it was so intuitive, but not to everybody, uh, clearly. Uh, they um, went back and read the comment cards and, and our, our recommendations and um, said, all right, we're going to reshoot. In fact, the, the funny thing is people were all onto their next project. So <laughs> there were hair that doesn't match and wigs and so forth. But the fun nonetheless was there. And 
the scores jumped up, I don't know, 30 points. Mm. Uh, it was a completely different, satisfying experience. And the rest is history. The movie becomes a classic, you know? And that is the joy in off, often of what I do, because all these stories, uh, but for the fact that they were changed, would not have had the success that they had. Many of them would have not had that kind of intellectual and emotional satisfaction. They might have had all the questions answered, but they wouldn't have left felt f- feeling fulfilled. Or they might have felt fulfilled, but there were a bunch of questions that were lingering. But when you have that marriage of both, often it's just magic. Yeah, I I, I want to ask about that magic specifically as it relates to seeing movies with other people because i there there's an as a film critic i was i was kind of interested in the in the 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 portion where you're talking about how studios long ago realized that you have to show some movies certainly with audiences you, critics have to see it with an audience to kind of get that full experience um what was that all like why do they do this um how does it actually change how you know critics see the the picture um and are we at risk of kind of losing part of that with the shift to online streaming screeners? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We totally are. I mean, I should ask, let me turn the tables and ask you a couple of questions as a former critic. Are you still a sure. critic or are you a critic? Still a critic. Okay. So when you go into a movie theater and you see a movie with no audience, do you feel there's any difference than when you see it? Are you influenced at all? I think it depends very much on the type of movie. I think uh, seeing a comedy with just other critics, because usually it's, you know, there's usually at least a handful of other critics. Yes. Seeing seeing a comedy with other critics is almost pointless. It is not my preferred way to see the movie. Seeing an award season movie where uh, you're, I think it is a little more serious and a little trying to focus a little more on the screen. I prefer those as critics only endeavors just because and I, it, it, and I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I'm with you almost uh, exactly with you, but I will say that I don't need an audience to tell me if something's funny. I know if it's funny and, but as a critic where you're trying to impart advice and recommendation, it is important to see if, are you really the only one thinking this or are there others, a horror film with the scares, right? comedies with it. So I think there's truth in that. Uh, but by and large, I find that um, the great critics, the great uh, film writers, editorial even, can form their own opinions. That said, I always encourage our folks to put a real experience in place because there may be something that's lost and they could be influenced in a positive way by, you know, you don't, you don't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater, right? You don't, you don't want to say, this is not my taste, because at least you may write, well, it was a little sophomoric, but the audience went crazy for it. You, you know, there's, there's a truth in that. We have a product at my company called Screen Experts, and uh, it's a panel that we have. Uh, we have a panel in New York, we have a panel in LA, and we have a panel in London of somewhere between 50 to 100 critics. And we pick randomly these critics, when people buy our service, and we bring uh, 10 to 15 of them from New York, 10 to 15 from LA, 10 to 15 from London. And from that, we create a curated body of you guys and women. And we've been doing this for over 15 years. So we have tremendous numbers of of movies with, with normative data. So we know 
how a movie is going to test once it hits the real world mm-hmm. with um, with the critical reaction. Because many movies live and die by critical reaction, particularly if they're quote unquote independent or art house type of movies. So the product is very important because otherwise you're you're riding blind. You know they used to have um, you know uh, toe dip screenings. You, they would call them. So you'd, sure, you'd have sure. a, a studio person would call you, Sonny, and say, you know, hey, Sonny, do me a favor, watch this movie. I really need your your real opinion about this. And you'd watch it and you'd go, well, I don't think it's going to do that well or, or it's going to be unbelievable. Uh, and then they show it to maybe two more people. And then from that, they feel confident to go platform the movie, meaning roll it out as opposed to just going full blast with, um, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 screens. You may just want to go with 10 screens because the critical response is going to build that word of mouth. And the word of mouth is the most important thing. And you, as a critic, could really help that. Help that. So to understand that early on is a very important thing. We still do that uh, exercise in a small screening room. Uh, we bring the critics together, but we don't have audiences there. And it is a great barometer. So I can tell you more scientifically, to answer your question, that audiences don't have a tremendous amount of influence on the critics. Um, but I still encourage, when possible, not in a pandemic, uh, a comedy or a horror movie or something that has audience reaction uh, and, 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 is, and is very dependent on audience reaction uh, to, to, to screen it that way. Mm-hmm. You, you, I mean, you mentioned the pandemic. How how has that changed your job? You mentioned kind of at the end of the book, you know, you you have online uh, tools that you can you can do these screenings. How how has that you know impacted your yeah? Your well, world? it affected it big time. Okay, because suddenly there were laws that <laughs> you couldn't go to public yeah. places, yeah. right? And yeah. uh, but first of all, uh, my business is pretty uh, robust and. Um, the business has, I have 300 employees and we do a lot of different types of testing. We do television testing, streaming services. We do, you know, cable and linear pilots and linear television pilots, cable, uh, scripted, unscripted content, all the whole gamut from advertising content and promos, you know, to commercials, trailers, all of that stuff. And we do all sort of custom studies and tracking studies. So we have a lot of business that was not dependent on the theater. However, that area really was um, decimated in the early months starting, I believe it was March 13, 14, something like that, I remember, <laughs> of 2020. Two years now almost. I know, crazy. <laughs> and uh, But what we did, as I said, is we became very resourceful because there was a lot of stuff in the can that people wanted to still test. So we came up with this system, which we've evolved a great deal, um, a great deal since then. And so we have this very secure, synchronous platform where you can actually live toggle and watch people watching your movie. It's fascinating. Hmm. What I love about it is the intimacy of it. You get to see people's in a movie theater. You don't you hear, but you don't see here. You don't hear, but you see and you see them going. If for the listeners, I'm <laughs> yeah. making a very animated face of, oh, I'm very engaged. And uh, when you get that nuance of the focus group afterwards, because we do discussion groups afterwards, and you have in these box, like we are now watching each other on Zoom, uh, you know, when you have that, that intimate kind of connection with someone, you really get inside of them. 
So my focus groups have become an, uh, much more robust and personalized in a way that I really find helpful. That's interesting. That is interesting. interesting. I would have, I would have, I would have expected the opposite, but that well, filmmakers are like, well, I can't stand this. I can't hear the audience. And I said, well, most of your audience is never going to watch your movie in the way that you would like to hear them watching it. This is what, how they're going to be watching it. You know, even yeah. if it's a movie that's going into a theater, more people will end up seeing it on their television screens or their um, computers or their phones or you know, it, it's just a fact. Yeah. You know, we haven't, we haven't discussed the focus groups at all. This will be, this will be my last question. Uh, I'll, I'll let you get back to your, get back to work here in a minute. But the, uh, we, we haven't really talked about the actual focus groups at all and, and what that process is like. Uh, you know, you're in early in the book, you talk about, um, how you, yeah, you really took a shine to it. You were, you know, kind of the preferred focus group leader, uh, at, at NRG when you were there. And then, uh, you know, as, as you, as you went on, but I'm, I, I, I'm curious what that, what that whole process is like, what it, what it's like to sit down with folks and lead them through their, uh, get them to tease out their reactions to the film. Right. Well, uh, I was a child actor, so it was a natural progression for me to, uh, to, to get to the truth. You know, as an actor, you're uncovering a character, you're peeling back those layers of the onion, you know? And so uh, I didn't know what the heck I was doing in the beginning. I, I kind of played the part, if you will, used my acting technique to get through what this is what I would be doing as a character if I played a focus group moderator. It wasn't until several years later where the, the science and then the art of the actual um, uh, qualitative researcher uh, took hold uh, with a lot of training, um, mostly in the field training. And you learn that the art of it is to, as you said, get a group of people in a very short time to trust you and so that they feel comfortable enough to open up to you their inner sort of feelings about what they're seeing and not be influenced by the other folks. So you have to manage that as well because you don't want people mm -hmm. monopolizing. There are people of all kinds of personality types in a group and you don't know what you're getting into until you're in it. So my job is to make sure that no one person does take over. It's also to really tease out the authentic responses and keep everyone feeling comfortable to give their own individual responses. And that in itself is a very fun exercise because you're getting inside of people's heads and acknowledging that what they have to say really does count. And I tend not to pay too much attention to like a rogue comment. I couldn't get beyond that person's accent. Well, there's not much they can do about that or the makeup or something. I mean, sometimes they even can, you know, they can revoice something. Now, if seven or eight people in a 20 person focus group are saying the accent really bugged me and I couldn't ever get beyond that. So I didn't invest in the character. They may want to consider re redubbing the voice. Mm -hmm. If the makeup is really distracting um, there are certain people that cry out of their nose, you know, you know, and so um, mm -hmm. the liquid comes out of their nose, not out of their eyes. And on a huge screen, that could be very, very distracting. And people will laugh and be taken out of the movie. So yeah. some CGI has to be added to remove that, for example. <laughs> Um, and that is just, I came up with that random example, but yeah. you get the point. You could say, well, what are yeah. they going to do? That's the actor. That's how they, that's how they 
that's their biological makeup, but you can change that. Or you have somebody going, oh my God, that actor looked like the, they wanted to pulling back their neck or their, because there's, yeah. you know, something. They can do those sorts of little things, uh, but you don't want to hear a rogue comment. You want to hear the commonalities that are going on. You also want to hear that it supports the quantitative data of all of those questionnaires that everyone just filled out. The focus group is a way not to simply rely on it as an as an end-all be-all. It is to enhance the story of what I'm trying to disseminate that evening or that day uh, to the filmmaker or studio. So like if it's if there's pace issues in the questionnaires, I may just get that there are pace issues. But in the focus group, I'll understand where specifically the pace issues arise or where they linger or why they're there, why they feel that way. So it's the kind of the why behind the what in the focus yeah. group. So that's why I love it. The other thing that we do now, now that we have more of a contained environment in certain situations is we add um, uh, dials. We have dials where if you like something, it goes up. If you don't, it goes down. It's sure. kind of like a heart monitor you're watching. We also have biometric bracelets, which are sort of like Fitbits, which measure your pulse rate. Uh, then we have an audio and facial recognition response as well through cameras. So all of that stuff and on their own give you partial information. All together gives you a more complete story to tell to be able to provide scientific scientific information to the art that you're that you're doing. So it's a real good combination of art and science, which is again to go full circle now with you, Sonny. I think I have the best job in Hollywood because I get to exercise both sides of my brain and I get to uh, provide, I think, a really valuable, you know, service. What is it, Sonny? It's information. It's information. I'm just the messenger. But yeah. if you are, you know, if you're, if you're adult enough, I suppose, to hear the information, you can listen, you can throw it out, but it's just information. And people that are listening to us right now, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't have that information. So I thank the audiences. I dedicated the book to the two people who started this business in modern movie, uh, movie dumb, Joe and Catherine from NRG, and the millions of, um, of people who've provided their unfettered opinions. And I mean that very, very much. Uh, without um, all of the people in the dark, uh, there would be no, no reason for what I do. Yeah. Well, I always like to end this uh, end the show by asking if there's anything I should have asked, if there's anything you think the people should know um, about your job or the movie industry in general. Well, I think it, the, the practical nature of anyone listening, whether they're a moviegoer or not, is there's something to be said about the wisdom of the crowd. Someone's on the highway and they hunk at you. You know, they're a jerk. If two people, three people, four people hunk at you, you're the jerk. You got to listen and know that you have a responsibility to own your own thing, right? Whatever it may be, whether it's a movie or your behavior or whatever. And so you have to sometimes listen to the wisdom of crowds. And that's what screenings essentially exemplify and, and amplify and shed a light on. Yeah. 
Kevin, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. The name of the book, again, uh, is Audienceology, How Moviegoers Shape the Films We Love. Um, there's a bunch of great stories in here. We we barely scratched the surface. Uh, there's one in particular about James Cameron that'll crack anybody up who knows anything about James Cameron, but I'll save it. Save it for the book. Read the book. Thank you so much, Sonny. And, and there's also an audio version that I um, narrate, and uh, I understand it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Is that on uh, Audible? Audible? Is that on, it's is that on, on every, everywhere? Amazon, everywhere. Audible, wherever okay. books are sold, you can find it. And okay. uh, if you want to go to my website, Kevin Getz, G-O-E-T-Z 360.com, it'll show you a trailer for the book and anything else of where you can get it and so forth. Definitely pick it up. If, you, if you're interested in the business of movies, you got to read it to understand. Uh, I'm Sonny Bunch, uh, culture editor at The Bulwark. We will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then. Thank you.